Today in Business from Wired. This episode is brought to you by ShipStation. You know, some things take a lot of work, like sending little robots to far off distant planets. And just as that's challenging, so too is running a successful e commerce business, especially when there's so much to do. So I want to introduce you all to ShipStation. Now, I love using ShipStation because of its easy to use dashboard, which makes managing orders and printing labels a breeze and super smooth. Oh, and the customer service is just out of this world. It's exactly what you need to help grow your business. Sign up for your free 60 day trial at shipstation.com slash tech news. That's shipstation.com slash tech news. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 25 years ago, Steve Jobs launched the first iMac and the strategy that saved Apple. The curvy, translucent plastic design of the iMac was the test case for Steve Jobs' whole widget strategy that led to the creation of the iPhone by Stephen Levy. Steve Jobs didn't want the photographer. It was May 1998, and he was about to launch the iMac, the computer that would strap Apple in for a wild ride to the greatest comeback in corporate history. The product was due to ship that August, 25 years ago this month. And Jobs had chosen me, then working for Newsweek, to get an exclusive first look and hang out with him while he prepped for the launch. He hadn't demanded a cover, as he often would in future years. At that moment, neither Jobs nor the nearly bankrupt Apple had that kind of clout. Even later, when Apple did have that clout, Newsweek would make no guarantees. But being Steve Jobs, he was very finicky about who would be taking his picture. He blew up when he learned the identity of the photographer Newsweek had assigned to shoot the behind-the-scenes images. Apparently, it was someone who, in Jobs' mind, had done a less-than-stellar job at a photo shoot years before for Next, the company he founded after John Scully fired him from Apple in 1985. And he was intensely skeptical of the portrait photographer our art director had chosen to take the hero shot. Moshe Braca? Jobs had never heard of the guy. When Steve got antsy like that, Floor suddenly got knee-deep in virtual eggshells, forcing everyone around him to step with gravity-defying lightness. His PR team had to all but beg him to walk downstairs from his office and sit for the picture. Jobs glared at me as he grudgingly complied. Braca, who had been flown up to Cupertino from Los Angeles, was used to recalcitrant subjects. He'd shot Joni Mitchell, Devo, and the Ramones. He handled jobs the way a Yellowstone Ranch cowhand does a wild stallion, whispering soothing words while subtly maneuvering Apple's co-founder into the poses he desired. Braca's fearlessness seemed to calm jobs. By the time the photographer asked the interim CEO to sit with legs crossed and hold the machine on his lap, Jobs' spidey senses told him that he was in the presence of a fellow artist. His smile was sweetly genuine in what became not only the dominant photo of the Newsweek spread, but one of the most iconic Steve Jobs shots ever. Apple eventually bought the rights so it could control its use. That was 25 years ago. This week we're celebrating not only the anniversary of the iMac G3's launch, 
But the moment when the dark clouds over Cupertino parted with the possibility that Jobs might actually pull off a recovery. Though the machine had no groundbreaking new technology, it was cleverly curated to provide the best of Apple's innovations to date. A powerful G3 chip, crisp 15-inch display, built-in modem, and software that demystified what was then the frustrating process of getting on the internet. Part of the package was the removal of technology. It had no floppy disk drive, which was standard on computers back then. A complete non-issue, Jobs said when I asked if people might complain. But most striking was its look, created and refined by Jobs' young new design wizard, Johnny Ive. The final result was a curvy, translucent plastic blob that evoked both the Jetsons and a blue watermelon. The color was dubbed Bondi Blue after the dreamy waters of the iconic Australian beach. After months of advertising to drum into our heads the idea that Apple thought different, the company had delivered a new computer that lived up to that slogan. Personally, I'm also celebrating the anniversary of a turning point in my own relationship with Jobs. I'd known him since writing about the original Macintosh launch for Rolling Stone in 1984, and in 1997 I had covered his return to Apple. But his offer of an advanced look at the iMac was the start of a routine in which I'd get an early peek, or at least a post-keynote personal briefing, on virtually every big product Apple launched in the next decade. The access I got for this particular story included multiple interviews, and even some informal hangouts. In his corporate suite at One Infinite Loop, I saw him take a call from Jerry Seinfeld, who was helping him get a clip of the comedian's first Johnny Carson appearance for a Think Different commercial. And after we drove in his Mercedes to an event facility, I watched an uncomfortable moment when he reamed out one of his employees at the launch rehearsal for not meeting the Jobsian bar of perfection. The most valuable moments, though, were when Jobs foretold how he would bring Apple back from the dead. The world is a slightly better place with Apple Computer in it, and if Apple can return to its roots as an innovator, the whole industry would benefit from that, he said, adding that this was a project straight from his heart. His plan centered around what he called the whole widget strategy, whereby Apple's products would be designed from scratch, with software created in-house and marketed directly to consumers. The only company doing anything comparable was Sony. Jobs said he had originally thought Apple could be the Sony of the computer business, but now he had visions of surpassing even that Japanese electronics giant. Now I say Apple could be the Apple of this business, he said, and that's what we're going to do. Of course, Jobs did that. The apotheosis of the whole widget strategy was the iPhone, but the iMac G3 was the start. He told me that the internal code names for the iMac were styled after Columbus's ships, Nina Pinta Santa Maria. I asked him why. It's a new world, he answered. Jobs had told me there was a detail of his software strategy that he would reveal on stage at the iMac's formal introduction. Since our story would come out after the event, I said that if I didn't include it, Newsweek might look dumb. He snorted at me with derision. You're going to look really smart, he said. You're going to have the first great photographs of this thing, and you're going to have the first in-depth story about it. He was right. Twenty-five years from that conversation, the article is still remembered for the photograph as much as the text. The iMac worked because of its simplicity, its value, and especially its design, which not only delighted our eyes, but fired our imaginations. 
On its silvery anniversary, the iMac name persists, and it still epitomizes the whole widget strategy. But it's a drastically different machine, way more powerful and way less fun. And there will never be another Steve Jobs. Thanks for listening to Wired. I'm Zeke Robison. To read Stephen Levy's Newsweek story about the iMac and for more stories just like this one, visit us at Wired.com. Like what you learned? Subscribe everywhere you listen to podcasts and get more business news at Wired.com business. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.